millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. There's a spending review to look at. Racial harassment is on the agenda. JISC has some digital insights. And there's some complaint summaries from the first part of the pandemic. It's all coming up. The thing is about this sort of, this campus versus online and blended, it's as if, you know, you hear policymakers and, and media and politicians as if it, people have just discovered sort of hybrid blended learning. Um, you know, and, and, and long before the pandemic, our nursing students were getting the vast majority of their content online. Yeah, pharmacy students for example. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, still isolating up in the attic, but as ever, a couple of great guests are here to help us get across this week's developments. Uh, in Neston, Helen O'Sullivan is Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Education at Keele University. Helen, your highlight of the week? Uh, well, um, Keele have been shortlisted as University of the Year in the Times Higher Awards, so I'm hoping that the awards ceremony Thursday evening will be the highlight of my week. <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, congratulations, and uh, you know, by the time this goes out, we'll know. Well, exactly. So uh, we'll, yes. we'll, 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 put a, we'll put a note in the show notes. And in uh, South East London, Amate Doku is a consultant with the Nows Group. Amate, your highlight of the week, please. Um, well, I think it's uh, my highlight would be, given that next week um, we're, we're hopefully coming out of our, our lockdown, I've actually been able to start planning social events again, which is like a, a novelty, looking at the diary previously, completely empty, but now tentatively being able to uh, arrange to um, meet people, obviously socially distanced with all the restrictions, etc, uh, etc. Et but um, th- there's a bit more hope. And again, by the time this goes out, we'll know whether or not Laura Koonsberg's supposed leak about whether where where, where London is in the tears uh, has come true. So uh, exciting stuff. Again, we'll put that in the show notes. Right. Uh, we start this week with the spending review. Trailed as focusing on jobs and jabs. Helen, did Rishi Sunak deliver a shot in the arm for HE? <laughs> Well, no, he set out, I mean, he set out the spending review, you know, for, for the next year. And we, we probably already had a good idea about some of the highlights, you know, around public sector pay, infrastructure investment and, and the cut in the overseas aid budget. But uh, I mean, the review outlines an ambition for the UK to become a, a scientific superpower. And there's 15 billion to be invested in R&D next year. Um, lots of things around uplift for UKRI, national academies. Um, there's a commitment to build in a new science capability and, and also to establish a new unit for commercialising research. And, and this is all really good news for universities in general. And it will, you know, we, we, it will really help us to play our parts in contributing to the post-pandemic economy. And also for an institution like Keele, it's really important that we're involved in the levelling up agenda. And, and there's also welcome commitment to unspecified amounts of funding to support the preparation for a domestic alternative to Erasmus Plus if we need one. But but outside that focus on research, there really isn't much to say about higher education. And there's a lot of attention given to the agenda for skills and, and further education. And there's a tantalising suggestion of something around a flexible loan entitlement, which I'm looking forward to. But 
no org review, no FE or HE white paper, no mention of the Pierce review or of TEF. And to be honest, I'm quite relieved. Um, we know that there are versions of some or all of these things kicking around in government. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that major disruptive change is, is, on, is on its way to higher education. And, you know, last week's Office for Students consultation on quality and standards gives us a hint of, of what might be about to happen. But I think we could probably all do with a short period of just adapting to what the pandemic has dealt dealt us before we have to start worrying about the next thing. <laughs> Amata, you were involved in the uh, Pierce review. How is it possible that you ha- are still maintaining a silence over what's in it about <laughs> 54 years after it was delivered to Parliament? <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, not delivered to Parliament, delivered to ministers. I'm not even sure there's any risk I could leak anything because I'm not sure <laughs> I can remember what was in it. It's been such a long time ago. Um, honestly, it, it's, I mean, it's got to the point now, uh, you know, it has been, it has been you know a very long time and, and it's not within the gift of anybody who was involved in that process um and i doubt it's in, even in, in the gift of it was certainly not in in shirley pierce um to, to 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 decide when this is going to come out or not so it's firmly in the hands of, of, of government um it, it obviously is a very different landscape but I, I still suspect you know the core things which the review was to look into which was around you know how do we make sure we can um uh, we, we, we can um, assess um, teaching and uh, in, in a way that is uh, better than previous iterations of the Teach Excellence Framework it still stands. That conversation hasn't necessarily uh, gone away. Um, but whether or not the government um, is planning to respond to it anytime soon is um, unclear still at the moment. <laughs> Helen, I mean, on, on, on one level or another, I guess it's, you know, moderately convenient in some ways that um, you know, we don't have a response to Augur because it, it kind of means that the sort of status quo prevails for a while, albeit with, you know, a declining unit of resource in real terms. Absolutely. And, and that's my point, really, that, you know, that there's a lot going on at the moment and the government obviously has a, has a lot of priorities. And I think while there are some people in government that would like to 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 really shape things up in higher education, you know, the longer um, that, that we can avoid facing up to that, perhaps the better. I mean, I think there are some there are some really um, important issues that need to be to be looked at, though. And that's why I said the the thing about the flexible loan entitlement was was quite intriguing because we do need to look at the relationship between part time and full time study and returners to learning and upskilling and and you know if it's one thing that we've all learnt during the pandemic is it's how flexible digital education can be and to enable you know people to make the best opportunities of that uh, around the around the loan scheme you know so I, I would you know I'd be interesting to see you know what happens there. Amate, are there downsides for you of, of kind of, you know, this kind of, you know, stasis, this sort of, you know, we're not, progress not being made on, you know, these big agendas that were in Augur? You know, are there, are there things that will, you know, wither on the vinyl suffer as a result of it all? Look, I think if, if, I mean, if you think back to when uh, the context in which um, Augur uh, uh, came about, and I mean, it feels like such a long time ago, but there was that real sense from um, at least to Theresa May's government at the time that, you know, they'd been burnt by that election and that students had had their voices heard and um, that fees became a, a totemic issue. Um, it feels like that pressure's slightly off at the minute. Um, but 
it, it can't be far off, um, uh, it, it, particularly if um, young people are going to continue to be hit by, um, uh, you know, coming out of this pandemic. I mean, some of the really concerning things we heard yesterday in the spending review around uh, unemployment, uh, you know, forecast hit, you know, 2.6 million. Um, you know, there's some really you know, scary things coming across, coming over the coming over the horizon. Um, so I, I don't think that the, you know, the the same model can remain. But sort of speaking to to Helen's point, I think one of my concerns actually looking at this is that the conversation around skills and the conversation around um, leveling up um, doesn't seem to be being had from government with um, higher education in mind it's sort of there's, there seems to be this focus it's as if you know higher education you do the teaching 18 year olds residential model thing <laughs> and when we're thinking about skills and leveling up we're, we're you know we can see that fe doesn't have the right, uh, right amount of funding which is which is true um but higher education doesn't seem to be included within that conversation at all and i guess linking that your your question um there was some stuff in auger around that it could go it certainly needs to, to, to go further um but there needs to be a real rethinking of the way in which um the, the fee structure works in order to genuinely incentivize universities to be part of the leveling up um uh, agenda because at the moment it just doesn't really it doesn't really make sense for universities to completely change their model to, to be able to support um you know people retraining uh, and the like and this is it, Helen, isn't it? So, I mean, you know, buried in there uh, yesterday was uh, a line on the student loans company getting a big chunk of money to uh, update their systems. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we're going to get, you know, lots of salami sliced bits of responses to Augur. And, you know, the forthcoming FE white paper will cover some of these changes that would need to be made to, you know, enable, uh, you know, more bite-sized higher education. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that, that dichotomy between the skills agenda in, um, in HE and, and FE, you know, I mean, medicine is essentially a degree apprenticeship, you know, it's a skills based program. And, um, you know, so there is a false dichotomy there. But I think, you know, the, the status quo is fine for helping us get our head around, you know, the, the current crisis. But there are structural issues that we, that we really need to tackle. I mean, the, the kind of the business model of higher education, um, on a declining unit of resource is, is probably not sustainable. So there are, you know, as we salami slice things, you know, that, that often is not an, you know, a particularly satisfactory way of dealing with those sorts of structural issues. So, um, you know, I, things do need to, to change happen but um you know starting with fe and that skills agenda maybe that's the way some of those things will will get will get the agenda good right let's see who's been blogging for us this week hi there so i'm amy ross and together with my colleague at the knowledge partnership dave roberts we've got an article in wonky this week which is discussing what's a common issue across the university sector and that's the oversupply of courses now i acknowledge it's important to have a range of attractive courses but in reality i think there's many cases where there's been a proliferation of courses within the same subject and often in response to under recruitment in the past and with all of the uncertainty that we're working with this year i think it's more important than ever to make sure that as many courses as possible do actually make a positive financial contribution to the university and really understanding that simply extending the number of courses won't often generate higher enrollment levels is the first step to resolving this kind of issue but I think what's clear from our analysis in Wonky this week is that many universities do actually have too many courses that are staying on the books despite many years of loss-making levels of enrolment. And really there needs to be improved processes across the sector in launching, in maintaining and especially in closing courses. And strategic portfolio management needs to be strengthened to make sure that the suite of courses is the right one in the first place. 
Now, next up, a new report from Universities UK calls on university leaders to publicly commit to tackling racial harassment. Amate, what's notable in here? Well, yes, absolutely. So this is the uh, report by UK um, responding um, to the EHRC report, which documented um, racial harassment, widespread racial harassment in, in higher education. Um, I guess that what's quite interesting is that there's some quite clear recommendations. Um, there's a real focus um, on um, taking an institution-wide approach to tackling harassment. Uh, and we've got things like making sure that universities engage directly with students and staff um, who, who've got lived experience of racial harassment, um, improving awareness and understanding of racism and racial harassment, white privilege and microaggressions through anti-racist training, um, for example. Um, and then um, some recommendations around the collection of data as well. So making sure that... Um, the data on the reports, uh, the reporting of instances is happening and that's shared regularly with senior um, staff. Um, uh, David Richardson, the Vice Chancellor of UEA, um, put out quite a strong statement and uh, saying that it is his firm belief that UK universities perpetuate institutional racism and that this is an uncomfortable thing to acknowledge, but all university leaders should do so as a first step towards uh, meaningful change. And um, I think what's quite interesting as well is that there's a bank of case studies um, um, which highlight what institutions are doing um, in this area. Um, we've got stuff from DMU, from um, University of East London in their establishing of a uh, Office for Institutional Equity and the University of Sheffield as well on their race equality strategy and, and awareness um, training. I think what's really interesting is comparing it with um, the, the work I was involved in just over um, a year ago um, now with University of UK on the Black Attainment Gap, the BME Attainment Gap report. The we did also we also did um, case studies and it's you can already see a bit of a shift and an evolution in the approaches. Um, back then it was very focused on what was happening in the classroom um, and focused on specific um, initiatives and projects. Um, whereas now we're starting to see, um, even though it's a small number of universities, uh, at, the, at the very least, we're starting to see far more institution-wide and strategic approaches to tackling racial harassment. So that's um, certainly very encouraging. Helen, um, I, I mean, I, I, the, 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 you know, interesting report, lots of uh, recommendations that appear to make lots of sense. But haven't I read this all before? It isn't the, you know, isn't the pace of change here, you know, unforgivably slow? Or is, you know, have we just got to tackle these things properly, slowly and systematically? I can't, do you know what I mean? It's, I feel like I could have read this report four or five years ago, or, yeah. or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I, I think you are right. And, you know, I just, start by saying that, you know, as a white PVC with no lived experience of, of racial harassment, it, you know, I have to acknowledge my own limitations on, on commenting on this, but that but that's exactly right. And, um, you know, as is the case with all universities, you know, Keele, we take this issue very seriously. So, we really welcome this report. And I think we've come to that conclusion as well, that we have to stop kind of talking about these things and, and, do, and, and get some action. So, um, and it actually, uh, you know, we had um, a joint meeting of Senate and Council last week on this very subject and David Richardson came and addressed that. And so we've committed to a number of actions, um, including um, introducing an anonymous report tool. And, and, and we've, we've, you know, we've told ourselves that we have to be uh, prepared for what that tells us, you know, apparent increases in 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 incidents of racial harassment, and and there's a, you know, we have to be prepared for that, and if it's successful, that's what we will see. Um, and and we we were at the forefront of a, a sexual violence project a, a year and a half ago, and that that was similar. It led to apparent increases in reporting of of, of sexual violence, and you know, you get some unsophisticated reporting that that will say, "Oh, sexual violence is very high at Keele," but it's just because we we put in the right reporting mechanisms. So I think 
those are the sorts of issues that that we have to be prepared for. But yeah, um, you know, as a sector, how can we reach our full potential unless we deal with these issues? I mean, we've got, as I've sort of indicated before, it's going to be, I think it's going to be very, very tough for HE over the next few years. And and the conclusion from all academic literature on sort of organisational performance shows us a direct link between innovation, creativity, entrepreneurialism and, and diversity. Um, so, I think in preparing for, for other crises that are around the corner, I mean, we haven't even thought you know mentions things like climate emergency you know it is uncomfortable for somebody like me to to acknowledge that you know i might be you know that there might be racism across the uh, our campuses and you know uh, but we need to feel uncomfortable because that's how we will will tackle these things and, and make a difference I would say, where, where does this sit in the kind of wider politics, do you think? I mean, one of the things I, I noticed on the day of publication that perhaps wouldn't have been the case a couple of years ago is a couple of comments from uh, politicians. So the, the Sun reported that Robert Halfon, uh, obviously chair of the Education Committee, tore into the balmy proposals, that's the Sun's words, not mine, <laughs> and said, combating racism and anti-Semitism is serious, but won't be achieved by adopting a wokest metropolitan agenda. The idea of white privilege is insulting to white disadvantaged pupils. And then Ben Bradley, MP, said, plans to teach divisive identity politics with no factual basis, forcing white privilege on students are immoral. So, I mean, is there a problem here in terms of where this kind of set of issues sits in a kind of wider culture war uh, and, and should universities worry about that or you know hunker down and plow on um well i mean in answer to that the, the last question i think <laughs> i think universities should obviously hunker down and, and plow on but i do think it's going to get um pretty challenging over the next couple of years and i think universities need to be um prepared for that um you know there's there's, there's Another approach, another way of looking at this, which is basically to say, and you know, I'm I'm doing some work um, with the NHS um, as well in this in this space, and it's just to say, look, what we're talking about is, does the organisation, does the institution, fully understand the experiences of all staff, uh, no matter what their background is, and are they making sure that any barriers that are affecting them um, are, are are you know are are removed? And on that way, on on that journey, you've got to then confront all these. Um, instances of racism that are being experienced instead of bullying um you know harassment um you know systematic structural inequalities they are all the things that just naturally flow from if you genuinely want to meaningfully engage with those uh, with all your um employees with all your uh, service users in, in the broader sense but obviously in higher education with all your students you know um if you genuinely want to meaningfully engage with them you've got to listen to their full experiences and that's the bit that i think doesn't get doesn't come across or <laughs> or is being kind of willfully ignored it's sort of seen as this um political agenda um and again then that, that means you get comments like this not rooted in fact well it is it's rooted in this is just flowing from what people are saying and people's experiences um but i think that's going to be difficult and I, I don't really see a solution in terms of necessarily winning the um uh, argument on, on the airways as it were but but i do think that um as helen said the imperative for universities to, to hunker down and just, you know, make solid progress on this is so important because the the sector is poorer as a result of not being able to draw on the diversity of experiences from students, um, not being able to have a diverse enough uh, academy. Um, you know, once we get there and universities are diverse and, and are more representative and um, have truly decolonized curriculums, um, I don't think anyone will be saying, oh, actually, we should row back to, you know, <laughs> 
2010 or 2010. What we need to do is go backwards. Yeah, yeah uh, it, it's just going to be so obvious. So I, I don't have any concerns that, that but I do think um, there needs to be a bit of a, a laser-like focus on just hunkering down and, and getting through this. Get, get, getting the action points done. Good. Yeah. Uh, now, every week on the podcast, we look back into the sector's past to discover how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HG. So Tony Cosland uh, decides that there aren't going to be any more universities, but he decides that the expansion that uh, he needs in higher education is going to come through a new type of institution. So Cosland makes his famous Woolwich speech. He talks about how we should have a public sector of higher education um, and div- starts to set about the process of thinking about how that might be. And that leads to a white paper on polytechnics, the idea that we should start to have a different type of institution owned by the local authorities, responsive to local needs. Um, and Coslin says that we should have, uh, these universities shouldn't be caught up on um, the uh, snobbish um, sense that they all had to be universities. He wants to stop them from, from going on and becoming universities. He wants to stay where they are. And that's underpinned by a, a theory that uh, one of his advisors, Tilbert Burgess, has of academic drift, that what happens is that uh, a local college gets above its station effectively and develops more and more uh, um, higher education and becomes a university and then ignores its locale afterwards. So he wants to fix the polytechnics in their place. So there's a, uh, another one of those great exercises where local authorities get to bid to have uh, their institutions turn into the The idea in this case is not a completely new institution, uh, but to see whether or not your technical college has got enough uh, critical mass of full-time students that it might become a polytechnic. Uh, and so there are various different bids, and that involves all the local authorities thinking how they can amalgamate their higher education into, into a sufficient mass. Now that means, particularly for the polytechnics, that they have to be in existing la- uh, large areas, because they isn't enough critical mass out in the countryside where they put some of the new universities so the polytechnics are all uh, start off being based in in larger city centers which often means that the poly turns up in a city that has already got a university because by the time it's got there it's had an old university so the poly comes along so in terms of spatial policy it's useless because well the polys just end up in the same cities as the universities but um, they they get going and they pull those things together. Now some places don't get to have their poly, so Hull um, really looked like it was going to be a leading contender to have uh, its polytechnic, but it didn't come off. You know, there was you know, arguments, uh, and in the end, the, 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 they didn't get a, a polytechnic in Hull. And other people were kept waiting. Um, there were discussions about which bits would get merged together. But the idea was to create uh, this public sector. Now the other clever thing they managed to do is they used the kind of scheme that they'd done with the Colleges of Advanced Technology and have a body to approve their awards and this is the CNAA the Council for National Academic Awards this innovation allows government off the hook of giving degree awarding powers out to all these different institutions and allowing them to say well, look we're just going to have this one body that would approve them and the, the masterstroke for the CNAA is that they don't go for the London model of setting the exams and making the students do it they allow the courses to develop with the institutions the institution can bring much more of its local flavour there's a coordinating sense so that you know a degree in business is broadly similar um, across the, the UK but actually you start to get quite a lot of local variations And that includes some of the really innovative things, the negotiated pathways leading to degrees in independent studies. And you you get quite a lot of of distinctiveness that comes out. And it develops quite a good corpus in terms of, you know, understanding how our courses work, develops quite a lot of um, good practice. And the the concepts that really underpin the CNAA tradition underpin quite a lot of what then becomes part of HQQC and QAA. The idea that it would be quite a good idea to think about a course before you started it, quite a good idea to be have quite a lot of transparency about the information 
in time it becomes a vehicle for considering that modules might be a good way of organising them. None of that's set down at the start, but, but you start to get much more of a kind of development of a homogeneity of how you might organise courses, which puts the UK on a pretty good setting. So the Polytechnics head off in that direction. They survive the change of government in 1972. Now there's a good chance that when uh, the Conservatives took over they could have killed off two things. They could have killed off the Open University and they could have killed off the Polytechnics. But Margaret Thatcher likes the Polytechnics. The Polytechnics are um, kind of business orientated, they're trying to develop skills, they're quite up for um, offering um, uh, expansion uh, and not complaining about it too much. And there's a great, um, again, on the file of the National Archives, an example where um, leaders of higher education were invited along to meet the Prime Minister. And they're invited to dinner at number 10. Uh, and there's a great briefing note that explains to Ted Heath exactly what status these, these people are. So there's these lovely little vignettes against each of the vice-chancellors saying which ones are clever and which ones are uh, which ones are, uh, know what they're doing, which ones look a bit bumbling but actually quite bright underneath it. So there's, th- there's that kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that you probably get given now uh, when you go to these kind of things. But there's a general summation of the two camps. Vice-chancellors are concerned about the role and understanding of universities. They suspect that the government underprice them and do not consider them relevant enough. Whereas, on the other side of the binary line, the polytechnics are generally in good heart. They have their preoccupations. Chief amongst them is the need for greater clarification of their role, particularly in relationship to the local authorities, and the massive expansion, trebling, of student numbers following the white papers. So the polytechnics have gone in to see Ted Heath saying, yep, we will treble our numbers, we will go for expansion, uh, and they will pull that off. So that kind of sense of the Conservatives can look to Polytechnics to be the kind of organisation uh, to come on and develop them is, is something that underpins Margaret Thatcher's time as Secretary of State for Education right at the beginning of the 70s. Now, JISC this week has published the results of its annual Teaching Staff Digital Experience Insights Survey. Helen, what did we learn? Well, quite a lot, actually. I mean, 2,677 staff took part from 14 different universities, and it was conducted, interestingly, between October last year and July 2020. So, 48% of the data was collected after lockdown began on, on the 23rd of March. So, it, it was, it was interesting to, you know, to see perhaps any impact of, of, of the crisis. I mean, it was good to see, that, from my point of view, it's good to see that 95% of teaching staff, you know, have a positive attitude to using technology. But the report highlights some really key challenges. You know, strategic leadership is vital in driving digital transformation, that there are more resources needed to support staff and develop pedagogically informed practices, that the digital environment and infrastructure require further investment. But to be fair, I, th- I think these challenges were there before, long before the pandemic. And, you know, people talk about this pivot to online, but my view was that it was more of a massive acceleration of a digital transformation that was already underway within many institutions. I mean, the institutions will have been at different points on that transformation, been at different points on that transformation. But, uh, you know, my other role, I'm, I'm chair of Association for Learning Technology, and we've seen our membership really holding up during the months of the pandemic and, and an increase in p- applications for our accreditation schemes. And I, I think this reflects the critical role that learning technologists have, have really played supporting academics. They, 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 
bridge that gap between the technology and the pedagogy and um, you know they've really supported staff in this transition and we're also we're seeing institutions investing in these sorts of roles you know lots of adverts out um, and, and one of the schemes that we offer at Alt is aimed at senior learning technologists and you know my view is that this will contribute to developing a pool of talented institutional leaders who really understand that pedagogy technology and have the skills in change management that we're really going to need to to accelerate this transformation even further. Interesting stuff. Amitate, yesterday I was on a, a, a panel and, um, you know, the question was, how do we make, you know, a go of this kind of new blended learning thing? And, and my opening gambit was, I'm not sure it's new for students. I think students have been blending their learning, you know, and using technology for a long, long time, even if some of their uh, universities and academics and, and stuff haven't. Yeah, absolutely. And and as Helen said, you know, lots of universities were thinking about this beforehand. It, it's not a new um, thing. And, and I think there's something which is going to become quite interesting over the next couple of years. I mean, if you, if you think about the um, students who will be starting in the next academic year, these are... Um, uh, for, for, for the youngest students, um, uh, they would have been born in what 2003. Um, you know, not far off the <laughs> um, when lots of the social media sites, um, you know, sort of became mainstream. Um, so very much in the digital native space, um, and increasingly as well, we're seeing schools um, adopting um, far more digital approaches to, to education as well. And also, in addition to that, I mean, even something that I, uh, even though I'm slightly uh, further out, but, you know, const- lots of learning through social media um, is happening all the time at, at, at all levels now, at all ages now. So we, we've got to, I think universities really need to be aware of those wider um, uh, digital transformations. Um, and it would be really good, in, in my view, it would be really good if we could get to a point where we weren't just sort of trying to keep up, but we were actually, uh, you know, a bit, if not, you know, keeping up, but a bit, a bit ahead of, of where technology is going. We've got the um, understanding, we've got the tools really to, to be able to do that, that scanning uh, and, and to think about, you know, how do we push, um, the, uh, you know, the digital approaches to learning rather than sort of try and keep up with, with everything else that's happening. Helen, I guess one of the one, one of the things that has kind of come up, uh, you know, certainly ch- uh, during the lockdown period, has been this question about wh- kind of where the campus is, because because I, I guess for for a lot of students right now, and actually for a lot of academics and and and, and professional services staff, the campus is actually you know in people's palm, in people's bedroom, in you know in in people's house. It's um it's somewhere else, isn't it? And that 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 has implications. Mm. You're right. And, but the thing is about this sort of this campus versus online and blended. It's as if, you know, you hear policymakers and, and media and politicians as if it, people have just discovered sort of hybrid blended learning. Um, you know, and, and, and long before the pandemic, our nursing students were getting the vast majority of their content online. You know, our pharmacy students were examining molecules, interactions through virtual reality. You know, our business students are carrying out consultancy projects with businesses over the other side of the world. And, you know, our environmental science students were taking part in living experiments on the on the Keele campus. So, this, this idea that you know, blended or hybrid is is new. I, you know, I think we need to focus on um, a sort of flexible digital education, and you know, look at places like Northampton who've completely redesigned their entire business model around digitally enabled active learning, and 
you know, universities like Coventry, who, if you if you look at what Coventry are doing around making digital resources accessible to students, um, you know, it's 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 really, um, you know, it's really interesting. So for me, it's not about campus versus online. It's about um, the reality, uh, as Amity was saying, about students living, you know, a lot of their lives online. And I would, you know, if I had one wish, I'd like to see every senior politician and policymaker involved in higher education to take a high quality online course. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a MOOC, but there's some great MOOCs out there, but, but a really high quality course. They would understand that online can be social, creative, inspirational. And, you know, it isn't a deficit model. Um, and, and the UK leads the way in many ways in, in online education. And, um, you know, it's becoming an increasingly important model for transnational education. So the constant narrative about online being a deficit i think is has been quite problematic through this crisis amate obviously you know if you put books or, or or lecture notes or whatever online as a as you know and it's and it's easier to access them rather than kind of pitch up at a photocopy or a library then that's one thing but come january when we've all had a letter from matt hancock telling us when we're going to get a jab aren't we all going to be saying you know, you can shove your learning, virtual learning environment. I want to sit next to someone in a few weeks. Like, won't there be this kind of mass sort of drift and push for, you know, kind of real life experiences and, 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 and a kind of draining off of the pressure on, you know, lots of this digital interaction stuff? Uh, Jim, I think you've, you've touched on a really uh, interesting point. It's something which I've been thinking about uh, actually over the last over the last couple of days. And I, I was listening to um, uh, one of my favourite podcasts, actually, other than the, the wonky show, obviously, um, exponential view, and there was um, uh, they were talking there about what tends to happen after pandemics. Uh, historically, uh, you get this huge boom period and this period of where everybody, you know, almost wants to kind of reject the constraints and re- restrictions that they've had to put up with previously and, and really just go for it and, and enjoy themselves, and you know, um, sometimes um, slightly recklessly. Um, but I think there is. In relation to in relation to your question, I think there will be certainly more generally the sense of you know no one wants to necessarily work from home all the time anymore. Um, people are going to want to get out there. People are going to get, make the most of their lives. But I do think um, I don't think that's necessarily mutually exclusive with this idea that actually the conversation that the, the the take up of certain things has accelerated quicker. So I think people will be more likely to request um, working from home when it suits them. I think people will be more likely to feel comfortable using digital at a time when it suits them. And it goes back to what um, kind of Helen, Helen you were saying. This isn't just about um, having lecture notes um, put online or, or having you know lectures recorded. A, a real high quality digital experience is about um, you know isn't a substitute for a kind of in-person experience it's, it's an experience in in um in its own right and the bits which can be delivered and should be delivered effectively online will be and the bits that require a face-to-face uh, element um c- certainly will be that's what blended is but it, it's not a sort of just a, a replacement for um those um kind of uh, in-person interactions well there you go the freshers ball is now the the summer ball and uh, we'll put uh, we'll put a link to that episode of that podcast uh that amate was talking about in the show notes now it's time for yes but does it correlate here with this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan welcome to yes but does it correlate to the podcast segment that commends this statement to the house 
ESA now release financial data on providers based on when their financial year begins, and the data for some providers has already dropped for 2019-20. I thought it would be interesting to compare tuition-free income for these providers against the previous year, to see if this group, which is mainly newish private providers, has grown at a uniform rate over the last year. Are all these providers growing at the same rate, or are some heading for the moon and others fading away? In other words, does it correlate? Yeah, so my view is that there won't be a correlation, that they will have all grown at different rates because they will have, there'll be, you know, different demands and and different markets that they've responded to. So I, I would say no, no correlation. I don't think there is a link between um, from year to year in terms of growth. I think some um, providers would have grown and some some wouldn't. Have. So that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say there's no there's no correlation. And the answer is a very clear yes. R squared is a record 0.98, making this a very strong correlation. Most providers in this basket are growing fee income at a similar rate. It's not a huge expansion, but it is generally expansion. But even the largest providers here, the University of Law and BPP University, don't even top £100,000 a year from fee income. This is a very small but structurally very interesting part of the sector. Data is from the HESA Finance Open Data release, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, the Office for the Independent Adjudicator has published the first set of case summaries of complaints that reached it arising from the impact of COVID in the spring. Amate, what did we learn? Yes, so the um, Office for the Independent Adjudicator, the OIA, has just published um, the first set of cases and summary complaints arising from the impact of COVID. Um, and most of that is drawn from, from the previous academic year. Um, uh, and uh, the document that they've released um, contains a total of 10 complaints, three of which are not eligible for the OIA to handle. Um, and there's sort of a mix, a range of ways in which the OIA has responded, as, as one would expect. They decided three were not justified, two were partly justified, one was justified, and one was settled with only minor intervention. And I think what's quite interesting about the OIA's approach is that it doesn't appear, and I obviously don't want to speak for them, but it doesn't appear that they've taken a sort of radically different approach during this period. Um, interestingly, some of the complaints had an industrial action element to them. And if you think of, you know, for a student who did a, a one-year master's degree, for example, for some students, that could have been a hugely disruptive year. Um, but it seems as though their approach has been to say, look, if the provider took all the steps that they could in their power to mitigate the impacts of either industrial action and or COVID-19, and if they also took steps to ensure that the complaints processes were sped up where possible, and as many complaints as possible were given due consideration, then they were, they were broadly satisfied with their approach. And that seems to be in line with OIA's uh, approach to um, handling complaints in general. I guess some of the bigger questions and the more political questions around refunds, um, uh, because universities have moved in line, uh, you know, refunds in principle as a result of that, OIA's clearly, the OIA has clearly not gone into that into that space. Um, but that's sort of um, to, to, to be expected, and, and I would probably imagine would would be dealt with elsewhere some of those more political questions. But they they seem to to be saying, look, um, we're not going to um, 
you know, if, if universities have taken all the reasonable steps in this uncertain period, then they're satisfied with um, the way in which um, those complaints have been handled. Helen, one, one of the things I was talking to someone about the other day was, what, if, if, if there's a whole bunch of students that don't feel like they've done very well this term, and that was certainly the indication in the polling we did in October, lots of students in the, in the, in the qualitative stuff there saying, you know, they feel like they haven't learned enough. It, how much of that is, you know, kind of their fault? Uh, and how much of that is the kind of university's fault? And how much of that is the pandemic's fault? In other words, you know, should a complaint to a university, you know, kind of, kind of work in that scenario? Or, or, or do we have to put that down to the pandemic? I'm, I'm really confused about whether or not, you know, where we can kind of ascribe responsibility if a student feels they're not doing well this term. Mm. Well, it's a, it's you know it is a challenging question, and I think you know one of the things that that most universities have done, and, and certainly we've done at Keele, is to is to really look at all of our processes, such as extenuating circumstances, extensions, deferrals, these sorts of things, and we've lowered the the sort of boundary, you know, the barrier for evidence, you know, so nobody's going to want to waste a GP's time by by saying you know go insisting that a student signed off if they've got COVID or or, or if they're self isolating. So I think in some ways, you know, that that more of a safety blanket approach um, is is reassuring. But I think, you know, we in in some I think in first years, you know, there are some uh, first years, you know, they will pick up, we will, you know, perhaps after Easter we'll be able to put on more, you know, catch up sessions around lab skills and clinical skills and what have you. And with second and third years, you know, we're keeping a real close eye on things like professional body regulations and making you know doing our absolute utmost to make sure students are able to meet those um and you know students uh, have been empathetic i think you know and adaptable a lot uh, you know a lot of them um they understand that these are really beyond difficult times and they understand that on the whole universities are working incredibly hard to, to minimize that disruption and to support them but i think there is there are groups of students that have faced real real difficulties you know that really do need additional help and I think what what we've tried to do is put in some blanket arrangements so that we can spend our time really supporting those students um, but there are limits to what is reasonable or even possible at the moment um, but you know we still need to support our students and, and treat them fairly and I, I agree with Amity I think the you know I think this report um, does does give us some confidence that we're probably you know dealing with things in a in an appropriate way well great that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find the links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via apple podcasts or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show drop us an email on teamupwonky.com and we'll be in touch so uh, lots of thanks as ever to helen amate everyone at team wonky for making it happen behind the scenes and until next week stay wonky Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.